0: Hey, this is Jim coming to you from from coronavirus land. Uh, yeah, in the middle of the pandemic, and I've been recording these podcasts. Um, I think I've done eight so far, and in each one, I seem to touch upon in a kind of meta way the podcasting process. I talk about here's why I'm doing it. Um, and I try, I try to avoid going on at length about that, because it, I, I try to be cognizant when I'm recording these things that I, I'm putting them out there into the world publicly for anyone to to get their hands on and listen to. Uh, so I, I, I don't expect anyone to really find these and listen to them. But I'm trying to remain mindful of that fact. And so for that reason, I try not to. I try to make a general interest. I try to make it not so much about myself. I, I don't just wanna like solipsistically sit here and tell my story. But I think as a, as a writer, I do remember reading somebody talking about writing and they said that your first book is you write your own story. You don't do it in a, in a way that you do it. You, you should dress it up so that it's interesting to the reader. Um, but what this is, what I'm recording here, isn't fiction. It's not a form of entertainment. And I think at some point, if if you do have to talk about yourself a little bit, I think as a writer, you just have to open up. Talk kind of autobiographically about what your story might be, uh, even with the understanding that that isn't general interest, that people might not relate to you, or at least everyone won't relate to you, but you, you have to have some trust in the basic idea that what you say about yourself, even though it's very egocentric, some other people out there are going to relate to that. Uh, When I was growing up, I I probably still feel this way, but I've I've always had the conceit that whatever's going on with me is somehow unique to me personally. If I find a a, one example, I find a TV show that I like, I feel like I'm the only one who knows about it. Like I might go out and talk about things from it or maybe quote from it, and people are like, oh, yeah, that's from such and such. It's always a surprise to me that, people are watching the same things that I'm watching or if I'll if I'll make a joke I remember having at some point I wanted to be a comedian like I wanted to like write jokes be some sort of humor writer in some form and I wrote a bunch of things down or at least had them in my head they were they were existent in some form and so many of those things appeared in Family Guy. I remember watching Family Guy and thinking, "This is most of." I guess that tells you how juvenile my humor was. Uh, but it, it was kind of a surprise to me. I was like, "Wow, this 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 thing that has been internal to me, like it's it's coming from people who are not me." And despite all of this, it's I still have this this sense. I, st- I still Kind of want to feel that if it's going on inside of me, it must be specific to me. It's it's all me. I have this conceit, and so it's weird because I have the this tendency to like minimize myself. Like, well, nobody would want to hear me talk about that because that they're not. That's not going to be their experience. Um. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Conceit is the right word. It just might be. It may not be a matter of up or down. I could say conceit means you see yourself as being better than others. I'm more creative than others. I guess I've, I've definitely had I definitely had that feeling when I was younger, when you were in high school, when I was in high school. I think when everyone's in high school and when their people are younger, you, you definitely have that sense to some extent, like what, what i 'm thinking what i 'm doing it it's somehow you, you somehow elevate yourself above people around you so there is there is that element to it and there's also the element of kind of put putting yourself below others like a sort of humility but i i don't know if it's i don 't know if it is up or down i don 't know if it's i think it's more just a feeling of separateness and whether that whether you sort of see that as being up or down is probably just a, a very circumstantial which is whatever's going on in me nobody would be interested in that because other people are different just the sense that you're so individualistic anyway so in case it isn't obvious, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, me this episode, which I, I try not to do too much, and talk about why I'm starting to record these things, uh, how it's been helpful. But, you know, just that caveat, if you're if you if you're looking for a podcast in which somebody is not just sitting there talking about themselves... Um, talking about things that may be beyond their own story, commentary about the world. I would look for, go listen to another episode of mine. This one's going to be pretty me centric. We'll see if I even publish it. I, I, I've always wanted to be, I think at base I've always wanted to be a writer. As soon as I discovered fiction, as soon as I discovered books, I, I did love books. I loved reading. And it seems like it was always dinosaurs that drove that. I, I remember the scholastic, um, I don't know what it was, this little like flyer that they would give us. They had, it was full of books. And this is, this is where I learned how to be persuasive because you, you have to take it home. You find some books you want, and you have to convince your parents to buy them for you. You have to say, they have to give you a check, you take it in. It gets mailed in, the school gets the books, like, sometime later. I was always so excited by that. I can distinctly remember doing this. Um, Just loved, loved getting books from that. I feel like this is priming. This was priming me and probably a lot of other people for what would later be Amazon. Just pick out the books you want, uh, and then they show up for you. You take them home and read them. And at some point, I think this was third grade. I I got one that was dinosaur-themed, because I often got dinosaur-themed books. And it was it was like a Cam Jansen. It was a series Cam Jansen. Uh, she was some, I think, a detective. Some kind of Nancy Drew thing. And the one that I got was dinosaur-themed. And it ended up being a young adult novel, which I did not expect. It had a lot of words in it. At that point, I was still reading like uh, picture books, you know, stuff that was easy to read. And so, this, um, this young adult novel, uh, shows up. I, I kind of put it aside. I was like disappointed. Like, I ordered the wrong thing. I didn't know it was going to be like a book, like I did with all these words to read. But at some point when we were just lying around, I picked it up and started reading and I realized that I enjoyed this whole, there's, there's a lot of text here. But there's a few pictures, but it, it's mostly just words and you're reading them. There's not pictures on every page. It was, it was the first book I, I liked, picked up on my own and started reading that was uh, basically text heavy instead of picture heavy. And I ended up getting that by accident because it was dinosaur themed. Yeah, I really liked dinosaurs. We had a a time machine in my backyard when I was growing up. I was very, very young. Uh of course what I mean by that is that there was there was a tree uh in the back corner of our backyard, like nestled up against a corner of the fence that separated our yard from our neighbors and it was large and the branches hung down. I think, I think it was like an evergreen. I want to say it was a pine. It was some kind of conifer, but in essence you could go into it and there was like this dome you could step into and it was very sizable. You could, you could, must've been eight feet square. And you you could just go in there and that was, we used that for many things. You know, it was, it it could be a house, but it, you know, it was a time machine. So you could, you could go in there, you'd go back in time and then you'd emerge from it and then there would be dinosaurs you'd have to fight. And my, my brother and my friends used to, to do this. So dinosaurs were were the catalyst for the catalyst for a lot of things. Um, so that was the first hop from like kids picture books to like a young adult novel uh, that I, I remember seeing somebody reading Jurassic Park towards the end of fifth grade. Adam Simpson had the book; he was reading it. And I knew that there was a movie coming out. I, I was familiar with it. I saw the book and I was like, I want to read that. That looks like it's got dinosaurs. And I knew it was more of an adult book. So I, I went and got a copy of that. And that was the first like adult fiction novel I ever read. And I remember... I found that fascinating because like Michael Crichton always mixed in a lot of science. Uh, it was interesting cause it was about dinosaurs. The, the adult themes were lost on me. I remember being somewhat disturbed by the violence and people being killed by dinosaurs. It's, it's much more graphic in the novel than it is in the, in the movie. it's much more described in more detail i remember thinking that's kind of morbidly fascinating and repulsive at the same time i but i i i I do remember liking the whole learn a little bit about genetics this is my first exposure to genetics it probably was true for a lot of people I remember watching a NOVA documentary about, about DNA that was, I think it was narrated by Jeff Goldblum, naturally. And it was, it was from the perspective of, what if we tried to clone a dinosaur? Could we get dinosaur DNA? And what is DNA? I remember being fascinated by that. It really stuck with me. The next one I read was The Andromeda Strain. Uh, that I don't remember much about that. The third one I remember, it was, it was his, his book that came right before Jurassic Park called Sphere. And that was about a psychologist who gets called in to investigate a spacecraft that has crashed into the bottom of the ocean. And, and it's been down there undisturbed for three or four hundred years. Since human beings didn't have those three or four hundred years ago, it's assumed to be an alien spacecraft. So they they, uh, they have to go down to this artificial habitat on the bottom of the ocean floor to investigate. And the main character is there He's the psychologist. so He's the one who's supposed to be kind of taking everyone's emotional temperature, keeping an eye on them. And this is of course, full of different bits of science. Uh, I remember I learned about space time, the fact that gravity curves space and tells matter how to behave. This is, this is responsible for the motions of the planets. Because there's a physicist character in there talking to the main character, describing to him these things. It's, it's kind of like exposition. Here's some background, but it's science. So the notion of like revealing things through dialogue, like this can be instructive. You can teach people things or put thoughts out there in some sort of dialogue form, but like, both learning the material about physics, which alone was fascinating, got me interested in that area of science. is from a high level. And the fact that a piece of fiction could be educational, kind of in a sneaky way like that, it's just worked in very naturally. I came away from that one thinking, okay, I'd like to be I think I knew around with the idea of being a psychologist, because I sort of identified with the main character and wanting to be a, a physicist because the, because of the subject matter. And I, I, so the, the, this spoiler alert here in terms of sphere It turns out that it is a man-made spacecraft that went through a black hole and fell down back to Earth. And and that's why it's been here for so long. It's because it actually is from the future, went back in time. Um, But there is something on the spacecraft, which is not human. It seems like there, there there are probes on the spaceship that can grab things they find out in space so it's, it's like an investigative ship. It, it goes out. It can find things, like it finds an asteroid it likes or something. And in one of the arms, something that it found when it was out in space, making its trek, is, is a giant sphere. And the sphere has no discernible entry to it. One of the characters manages to figure out how to get in goes inside and when he comes out things start happening this is where like a giant squid shows up and attacks them and they, they have trouble making sense of it but they, they come to learn that the, anyone who goes into the sphere acquires the power to have their thoughts made manifest so it's a giant squid because the one guy who went into the sphere he was terrified of 20,000 leagues under the sea when he was a kid. And he has this fear in his unconscious. I, now that I think about it, this is very Jungian. I think there was a lot of Jungian psychology in, in this story. And so the, this, this is why this happens. Basically, this fear gives you the power to manifest your thoughts. If you think something, then it happens. And if your unconscious has some fear in it that may manifest itself autonomously, since the unconscious operates without us being, without our conscious knowledge or force, then things could manifest themselves just on their own. That's an interesting concept. That's really interesting. Now that I know something about Jungian psychology... So it ends up with three three characters at the end. They all get this power, and then they, they end up using the power to undo the fact that they ever got the power or saw the sphere. They basically change what happened because they're worried what happens if this gets out, if, if human beings suddenly had the power to manifest their thoughts. The final message which is driven home very, very clearly. This is, this, is, this is definitely just spelled out for the reader. That human beings are not responsible about what they think. They are not responsible about their thoughts. And there is a part of us that operates below our conscious awareness that who knows what's down there. It may manifest monsters. It may manifest giant squids. Which influences our conscious thought. So, they, they they kind of speculate about what this this might be. This sphere might be a kind of test. Put this thing out there uh, in the universe, and if a if an organism capable of conscious thought, but irresponsible in what it thinks, if it has basically not, no morality in what it thinks. If the thoughts are just unguarded free form, then this sphere would herald the destruction of that species. This power would inevitably, inevitably destroy anybody who wasn't responsible with consciousness. So I thought, it. it since human beings are not responsible about what they think, uh, and because you can look at our world and say, well, bad things do happen because these thoughts do manifest themselves through action sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes the filter falls down, that if what we thought just always came true, that would be the end of us very, very quickly. I can appreciate the point he's trying to make now much more than I did when I was younger. I just thought it was a cool idea. I got obsessed with that. The idea that I could think something and it would happen. Me and a couple of friends were like, yeah, let's, let's assume we have that power. We try to like, will things to happen. Like somebody's playing a video game. Let's, let's try and, Concentrate really hard and make them die. Or if you say they're going to, to, to die in the video game, they'll, they'll die, it's called, we're making it happen. This this fascination with control. I was really interested in that. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent, but that, that's, I, I haven't thought about that book in years. So yeah, physicist. I think I read some more Michael Crichton books. I read Congo, which is about at base, I mean primatology, that's that's where he that's the science he smuggles in there. The Terminal Man, which I think is about whatever passed for neuroscience, our understanding of, of the brain in the nineteen seventies. From there I, I can't remember. I do remember being fascinated by Michael Creighton wrote an autobiography of his life called Travels. And that that was interesting. It was interesting to see. Here's an adult. Here's how he's experienced the world. He went to medical school, left out, became a writer. He traveled around the world, and here is what he did. Here is how he, how he felt about it, how he interpreted what he Here's why he sought out the things that he sought out when he was traveling. I found that fascinating. Uh, but the one chapter that I remember really getting obsessed with was, uh, he, he goes to like some, some sort of meditation center, some sort of new agey thing, and yeah, I think this is a separate chapter. One of the chapters is he goes to some new agey thing down in the, in the American Southwest, somewhere in the desert. And part of it is he learns to see auras. And he's very skeptical about this. He's like, can people, re- he's, a, he's he. Michael Crichton was originally a doctor. I don't think he had any real reason to believe that he would, see anything like an aura and it ends up he does he does end up seeing them like they they turn off the lights they're all looking at this person everybody around him is like yeah we can see it there is this this glowing orb around the person um it's apparently what an aura is it's about it's supposed to be some sort of invisible force field some sort of energy Uh, it's like six inches away from you, all around you. Just encapsulates you. And if you can see this, it apparently is an indicative of someone's internal state. Uh, so it, and, uh, uh, Michael Crichton ended up being able to see. Uh, and apparently like, he just stopped trying, he stopped trying to force it and he just looked back and he was able to see this orb of light around the person in the dark. Uh, which, it, I remember thinking that was very interesting. I spent some time walking around in school trying to see people's auras. Like just looking, trying to focus my eyes on the, on the air around them six inches away. As if it were something that, if you if you just focused your mind there, your eyes, if you just focus your vision there, th- that it would appear to you, it would come into. Come into view. And I never saw anything that stark. But I, I, I. I was really taken with that idea for some reason. And I I, I remember seeing a documentary. And I think I I have to use the term documentary very loosely here. About about somebody um, who was able to see auras. He just he didn't have to try, he just saw them naturally, just walking around. And the one story I remember from that is that apparently according to this, one time he was about to get on an elevator. And Nobody in the elevator that he was about to get on, like there were three or four people already in it, they had no auras. He couldn't see their auras. So he was very alarmed by this, and he didn't get on. And then according to the story, the elevator, the, co- the cable broke, it plummeted down, and all those people died Like within the next minute. Yeah, I spent a lot of time being fascinated by that. That whole idea of there's there's an aura. Its color or intensity tells you someone's emotional state. There there was also the notion that it could accumulate clutter. So you have to have it cleaned. Somebody can fluff it. At some point, Michael Crichton gets offered by some lady to have his aura fluffed. And he's his reaction very much mirrors the tone I just used. He's like, "Are you kidding me?" Like, there can't be anything to this. But he's like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead, fluff my world." Uh, he he said he remember he remembers it feeling like. He said it had an effect on him. He was like, he felt spruced up somehow. And, and the other one, the other chapter in this book, Travels, uh, was about him at a some sort of retreat, something spiritual. I don't remember what what brought him there, but he ends up developing a relationship with a cactus. It's He's meant to go find his teacher. Uh, I, I, I don't remember what philosophy backed this, but what, whoever was instructing him, they said, Go wander around in the desert in nature, and you will find a teacher. It's not going to be a person. It may be a person. I I don't remember what the parameters were. But wander around until you feel that something speaks to you. It will advise you and pay attention to it. And so he ends up getting fixated on this cactus And so he he pays particular attention to this cactus just because he feels some energy coming from it. And the cactus eventually does, he senses that it's speaking to him. Um, So it tells him some things. And there are times where he goes back to it for advice and it refuses to speak to him like it's just a cactus sitting there he'll he'll yell at it and say like talk to me and it, it won't but just the idea that yeah at, at that point I started I remember trying to talk to plants on a few occasions I remember being at my friend Encore's house and like he had a his parents had a very large house plant in their living room a massive thing like a big leaves Um, they're called fronds maybe I want to say just hanging over I would like talk to that thing he'd be like what are you doing you're talking to a plant I was like I don't know I'm trying to chase some sort of spiritual experience I read about Michael Crichton's book Hmm. I'm delving further into Michael Crichton than I expected to. Like I'm, I'm taking a lot of time talking about these ideas. i meant to go more rapid fire through i meant to go broad and not deep but this is this is interesting to think about Anyway so my, I kind of just worked through Michael Crichton and I want to say there was another author that I read after him a little bit. But eventually, I don't know if it was direct or not, but I, I came to Robin Cook. Michael Crichton in the 70s directed a movie called Coma, which was based on a novel by Robin Cook. And he was also a doctor. Like Crichton had gone through medical school, but Resolved at some point not to be a doctor, he just became a novelist. I don't, I don't know how much he ever practiced medicine. If he ever did, Robin Cook was a doctor. Like he he was definitely, at least a resident. He was certainly practicing medicine as a physician, and and he started writing novels about the field of medicine. Uh, it was fiction that was basically meant to illustrate for a layperson what was going on in the field at the time. Uh, Kind of discuss ethical issues of whatever was cutting-edge science in medicine. So it was basically the fictional equivalent of some op-ed column saying, I'm a doctor, here's my opinion. He would kind of tease out the ethical implications of whatever was going on in medicine that he was concerned with at the time through some story. Uh, I remember looking into this recently, that was exactly the intent. He did that very consciously. He wanted to be a writer and that was the the route he took. So I started reading that, that stuff, like his books, working through his catalog and I, I started wanting to be a doctor. So I switch from physicist or psychologist and, and get to, I want to be like an internal medicine doctor. And this, I'm about 11 years old when this is going on. So you're not, it's not as though I know what any of this means. If I'm a psychologist or a physicist or a thera- you know, a doctor, like a medical doctor, I don't know what that means for like what I have to do in college what kind of life that would mean what that would actually entail I'm just I'm just like having these fantasies like someday someday I'm going to be this yeah so it was Robin Cook for a while wanting to be a wanting to be a doctor I think I read a little bit of other fiction here and there But those were my my focus for a while. What I came to next was Stephen King. At some point, I got it into my head that I wanted to read horror. I think because I kind of had this... I was always very sensitive to scary movies when I was younger. I did not like... If there was a scary movie on, I would avert my eyes. I didn't want to see Blood and Guts It really freaked me out. Um, there's actually, there actually is a a movie called Summer School, and it's, it's a, it's a funny movie. It's just a, it's a silly 80s movie. Uh, like in the spirit of Animal House, there's just some kids, and you know, there's teachers. And, and I remember there, there's a scene in that movie. A couple of the characters are filmmakers. They know how to do special effects. And so they prank a new teacher who's coming in. When she first arrives, they all make it look like they've been brutally murdered in a classroom. They're all just sitting around dead, lying in their guts. Uh, A couple of them come running out with chainsaws. Like, we've killed these people, like, just. And when I was really young, I turned on the TV one day. And I happened to turn on the TV right in the middle of that movie, which I hadn't seen. uh, Right at the beginning of that scene. So just as they're going into the classroom. And so there's just this blood and gut stuff happening. It was the, just. And it really creeped me out. Like it scared the hell out of me. So I remember turning off the TV. And I was kind of curious, like morbidly so. Um, how old was I? I must have been, must have been six when this happened. So I turned the TV back on after it was off for a few seconds and it was clear from what I was seeing that it had been a gag. Like the kids were all getting up, they were smiling, there was like a relief of tension that the teacher was annoyed that they had played this prank. So I knew on some level when I saw that, okay, I was like, this is all fake. But, you know, I I turned it back off and it, it disturbed me nonetheless. I didn't put the two together it was just like okay I just saw something really disturbing and it was just what I had seen was fake and even in the context of the movie it had been intentionally fake that really really creeped me out so I I think that maybe had an effect on me like from that point on when I saw scary movie like something that may have knowingly had blood and guts in it I didn't want to watch it just because I remembered this experience and how it traumatized me I still haven't gone back and watched that movie I've seen the scene but uh and it's pretty ridiculous like you, you there, there's no way you can watch it as an adult and be the least bit scared it's all just so over the top like they're lying there, supposedly dead, but they're all moving, breathing. Their eyes are blinking. Uh, it's just silly. But yes, yeah, so at some point I, I say to myself, I'm going to start reading horror novels because I want to overcome this fear. Like I've been shying away from it. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go from the shallow end to the deep end, Just just go right in. And so I started with Stephen King because he was the one that people seemed to be reading. He seemed to be the most popular. Uh, so I, I went to a bookstore and got, well, I started with the with the book It. And I've definitely talked about and written about It um, elsewhere. I like can kind of, skirt over it but that's the one about the the psychotic clown the monster is a clown and so I read that when I was 11 or 12 and the interesting thing about that is the the story of it is a it's about a group of kids who are living in a small main town and they have to fight this this monster, this evil. It's it's a it's a shapeshifter, so it, its real form is that of a giant spider. Uh, but it tends to take the form of a clown, so it can lure children in and eat them. And it preys on the children both carnally and psychologically. So it it, it lures them in as a clown, but then will. Morph into the thing that the kid fears the most, and then just devour them. It like it likes it when its fear is, or sorry, when its prey is afraid. Like it likes to scare the hell out of a kid and then eat it. So the kids basically go in and fight it, and they they come out victorious in a way. Uh, but the monster itself is cyclical. It, it comes back every 27 years from the underground to, to feed. And so the, the book itself opens up with the adults um, basically getting a call from their childhood friend who stayed back in town. Well, Six of them have moved away. One of them may, remained behind. So he calls them all back and says, like, yeah, you know, it's starting to kill things again. The clown has come back. We have to fight it again. And so they, they come back, and the second time they end up defeating it. They're, they're all approaching middle age. And so this one is, again, I've said this elsewhere, so I can, I can kind of just gloss over it, but I remember reading this as an 11- or 12-year-old. And half of the book is the kids about 11 or 12 years old fighting this monster. And I remember thinking, I I wonder where I'll be, since there's this kind of longitudinal aspect of the book. I'm reading about these kids when I'm a kid and the adults are like 38, 39, I just kind of wondered, where am I going to be when I'm 38 or 39? Where will I have, what will I have done? And so just as it happens by coincidence, like the, uh, there was a film version of this, uh, book made, released in theaters in two parts. The second part of it came out last fall. The second film focuses on the adults coming back to fight the the monster. And I am now about the age of the adults. I'm like 37, about to turn 38. So it was this going back and revisiting the story, both the book and the movie was kind of weird and that it connected me back to this old thing that I used to, that I had read as a child um and it, it, what i my interpretation of the story is that the monster itself was meant to sort of be a metaphor if you will for childhood trauma that was the whole point when you're a kid you're dealing with demons and when you're an adult, you, you get to a certain age where you have to go back to your childhood and face some form of those demons again. And so I, I the, the film version that came out last fall, I ended up going back to see that 10 times in the theater because every time I saw it, I was just watching these grownups confront a literal embodiment of their childhood trauma and defeating it, and that was so incredibly cathartic to me. Uh, just like, yeah, you go I, I would I would leave the theater every time, feeling like I'd just been cleansed of, of some demon inside of me. It just it kept getting, it never failed to give me that feeling it felt uh i don't know it felt uh, felt good it helped that it wasn't strictly a horror film. Like, there is a monster, but it was really focused more on the characters. uh, Which is, I think, the reason the film worked. At least why it worked so well for me. Anyway, so I read It, and then I proceeded to start going through the rest of Stephen King's catalog. One by one. And at this point, I'm not interested in... I no longer aspire to be any occupation that i've found in any one particular book i I get it into my head that okay it's not that you want to be a psychologist or a physicist or a doctor it's just that you you enjoy reading these things you enjoy the stories and it wasn't lost on me how massively successful stephen king was so i thought well that's the road you should go down be a writer and like all the other occupations i wasn't at all aware of what being a writer would actually entail I, I didn't know that you want to do that you want to go be a writer you can but that is that is that is hard work that is you you can do the right things as a writer your entire life but you may not ever be successful. The people that are successful are extraordinarily lucky and they, they've probably gotten lucky because they've worked exceptionally hard to hone their craft. Um, but that's the, that's what a writer has to do. They, they, they labor in obscurity. They work at getting better at their, at their art form. And some artists achieve recognition and success and and most do not. But so this is when I, I started, like I want to be a writer. And so I started perceiving the world slightly differently. It was, I was wandering around looking for where you could insert a story or what was going on in the world that could be made into a story. What was interesting enough to hang a novel on, and I started paying attention to the people around me as as characters that I could use to fill it. And uh, uh, basically, I'm trying to put the elements together in a way that makes sense. There's still something fundamentally missing here because I'm 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 just looking for something. I think that the emphasis of Stephen King's books is in the monster. Like it's very, very clever of him is what I would think that he came up with the idea for a dog being rabid. You know, um, of course people don't read it for that. That's, he, he comes up with those kind of macabre, dark stories as a way of exploring the characters. He develops characters very well, and the voice that he gives them is very, it makes the characters very believable and very relatable. As a 12, 13-year-old, you don't see any of that. It's not That's not clear to you. But wanting to be a writer, wanting to write stories um, and reading stories to kind of I felt felt like I liked reading the adult fiction because it felt like I was peering into a world that was foreign to me. Like someday I'm going to be an adult, but I'm not now. And that was my way of connecting to it. Kind of learn about the world through this fiction. I think that had upsides and downsides. I did learn a lot of things that I wouldn't have young, Uh, but there were some very disturbing things that I read. And I, 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 I read a lot of Stephen King's characters are just outright disturbing people that have no sense of morality whatsoever. So I absorbed all of these things and I, I think I came away from it without a clear sense of, I had a sense of right and wrong. I certainly wouldn't have done anything to hurt anyone because it, I knew that was wrong, but it kind of blurred the lines for me. Like it, I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me what, what in Stephen King's stories was a perverse exaggeration of reality for the purposes of the narrative and what was actually a reflection of what the adult world was supposed to be like. So I think it, I probably went into high school having read all this stuff very confused. Not sure, like, where the... where I, I guess the, the focal point of your average human adult really is. And I think that there was enough negativity, enough horrible things that the characters were doing that I came out of it with a very dim view of human nature. I end up thinking if this is the way people are, uh, people are not that good. Now again, I think it's for the purposes of the story, it's just sample bias. Uh, Stephen King is not writing about the parts of reality that He's not writing to that mean, to that average, to that center of that bell curve. Here's where people are. He's picking the extreme, dark and disturbing. It's very off center. But I kind of, I wasn't clear where the center was. I, for me, it fell somewhere between those two points. So my internal compass was a little bit off, I think, because of that. But uh, getting back to this whole point of I start looking for stories and I developed them in my head, mostly. Like I'm trying to like figure out how to put them together. What goes where, what happens, who does what, how does it end? There was one lengthy novel maybe a novella that I wrote in college. And that was the culmination of a few months of me just walking around with a story in my head, putting it together, kind of having a rough idea of what the paragraphs would say, like which paragraph would say what. Like I really put a lot of it together just in my brain. And it got to a point where I had enough in there that I just had, I just dumped it into a word processor uh one week in December, my junior year. And that was most of it. I, I think I added a closing, like an epilogue to it later to, to close the story out in a way that was satisfactory. But most of the things happen in my head. There's usually a lot. Things occur to me. And I feel like I have to get them down. Like, I feel like I have to put them down someplace, like write them, like purge myself of them. And to get back to that, I think this is why I am podcasting. That's why I enjoy this talking through things to get back to the reason I'm, I'm doing this because when I was a lot younger, there were not many things that i needed to remember and i think my brain was much more capable of remembering a lot of things i was capable of holding a very long story with lots of details in my head and i could just go back and basically transcribe that from my head onto paper and as i'm getting older i need to my my memory needs to be used for other more important things And I, I, of course, whatever working memory I have is probably declining, I would guess. Doesn't necessarily feel that way, but, but essentially my, my cognitive faculties need to be allocated elsewhere. And so I have, I have, I do have a blog and I do write on there. And I, I did notice a few years ago that there would be thoughts in my head, ideas, not necessarily ones that I would choose, but they would congeal and form, and they would I would elaborate on, elaborate on them in my head. And I'd figure out the phrasing that made sense. Like I'd put sentences together. I'd figure out how, what words I want to use, swap them around. You could just construct this thing, and it would essentially stay in my head without leaving until I wrote it down. Like it would just insist that, yes, this has to be expressed. I'm going to hold it here at the forefront of your thoughts until you do. And so purging is very much the the right word. It's like once something is, is put together in my brain, I have to get it out somehow or else it just is a blocker. And so there's that, there's that need or that compulsion. And there's also the, the, the idea that there's the knowledge that I would like to, I still have this inclination in the back of my mind or some drive or desire to be a writer, which means I have to get better at writing. And the only writing I do is with this blog. And I'm very cognizant of how good the writing is or is not. So I I want it to be getting better over time. I want to, I want to be constructing blog entries. I want it to be more skillful. Um, so there's this pressure on myself to make each one better than the last. And if not better than the last, then at least there's some minimum standard I have to meet before I publish something on there, before I write it. And I think these two things have recently come into conflict, because if you have a simple idea in your head, it may take me a very long time to figure out how to construct that into a an article that is well-written. So things stay in my head for a very long time, much longer than they need to. And so there's this simultaneous need of getting it out quickly, but having to invest the time to make it good enough so that I feel okay about putting it out there. And I think psychically this has gotten me pent up. Uh I, I think that's caused me some problems the last few years. Um, and so the, just being able to stick a microphone in my face and hit record on my phone and just talk all this out instead, taking whatever thoughts are, are maybe in my head and just sort of letting them spill out, knowing that they're documented somewhere, and, you know, publishing them. I think it's important that it it becomes public. I don't publish everything that I write or record, but it's important that some of it is out there. And I don't think it's an exhibitionist drive. I don't know what the underlying motivation is. This, maybe this is just. I'm just trying to imagine before you had the internet, before you could just go on there, express a thought, and put it out there, I, you were reliant on getting something published. The only way you could delude yourself into thinking that. Okay, my work is out there in some form in a way that people might discover it and might read it and be affected by it was if you you were published, if you managed to print a book or you do something in a newspaper, some physical medium was required. That feels very stressful. Like if that was the reality, I can see why you would you would fight so hard to get published. But the the getting it out there so that it could be found, just knowing that it is somewhere out there, discoverable. Somehow that seems to be a critically important part of the process. And the internet just basically hands that to you. I, of course, have analytics on my blog, and it's always, it's always interesting when I find somebody who... Occasionally somebody will find it um, and spend maybe 10 minutes. Sometimes it's a lot more than that, like maybe an hour. And you can tell that they're just going through and like reading different entries. Like they're actually taking the time to consume the thoughts at the very least. And of of course that is, of course that's gratifying. It's nice to know people are reading it, even if you don't know how they're being affected by it. Um, and this means more to me now because I do try to put more of myself into my writing. Like what I write on the blog, it, I try to make it not, like, like again, not exhibitionist, not gratuitously personal. Like here's just all of my, but I, but I try and like self-reveal on there more. And seeing people read that is more gratifying just because I think it feels good to be seen. So the knowledge that you can express yourself, some part of yourself um, that represents who you are in a way that maybe is couched in something that somebody else would be interested in reading, whether it's a work of fiction or just here's a here's a post about some movie, you know, that I found meaningful because here's. Here's how it affected me. You kind of self-reveal, put it out there. It feels very cathartic. It feels very good. That's an important part of the process. And so I'm, I'm limited in how readily I can do that with the blog because I, I, I care about the, the quality of it. And so this is why I am recording these podcasts, because at any given moment, if there's a thought that I think I need to express, there's no pressure on me to do it in a structured way. I think you kind of have to say like, hello, this is Jim, you know, and I'm just going to kind of freeform talk through this idea. If anything else comes up, you can just keep going. You know, keep going until your head has nothing else to, to get out of it. And that's, that has been therapeutic. I feel like that is, has that is basically cleared the decks in my head. Um, over the last few days, I don't know how many hours worth of stuff I've recorded. It's got to be close to 20. Um but whatever's been bouncing around in my head with the insistence that I hold on to it because it has to get out there somewhere, it it now has somewhere to go where there was not a whole lot of pressure to make it perfect. And so what's left behind is just sort of this, I just sort of denuded myself of that clutter. And it's allowing me to focus on what is right in front of me. These thoughts that I'm using to distract myself from the question at hand. And the question at hand very much is, what do I do next? I knew it was time for me to leave the job I just left, like where I just put in my notice two months ago, just before the pandemic hit. I knew it was time to leave but as much as I tried to squint, as hard as I tried to peer into myself, I, I, I couldn't get a clear picture of what it was I should do next. That's very much been me for most of my, I have known when to move away from something But I feel as though I haven't really had a clear sense about here is what you move towards and when you should move towards it. Yeah, so I think that is, I think when I turned this on and started recording this, that's basically where I wanted to get to. And for this is exactly the reason why I suggest anybody do this. Maybe people's brains are not like mine. maybe your your head, your soul, whatever it is. Maybe it does not demand to express itself. Well, mine does. I think it's problematic when I'm not getting things out of my brain. But it is interesting to just kind of sit here and sort of just ad lib this soliloquy into a uh, into a recording device to no one in particular about whatever you want, and you can you can put it out there in a way so that other people can listen to it. That seems so incredible to me. This is essentially like, there's an old, this is a good, there's an old, I want to say it's an 80s movie. It's done in the style of an 80s movie, but it was released in 1990. So it's right on the cusp. It kind of has 80s, 90s feel to it. It seems like it's right there in the transition. And given the subject matter, this is probably appropriate. It's, it's one of the few 80s movies about high school life that touches upon the theme of suicide. I can't think of another one from the eighties that was anywhere near that dark. As a matter of fact, that's the perfect transition from the 1980s. Like we're just, it's Cyndi Lauper and really tacky pants at the gap and Michael Jackson, the heyday of MTV. Fast times at Richmond High. All these things, and it just, you have this one movie, it kind of feels like an 80s movie, but it's about, it's about suicide and the darker aspects of being like a high schooler, like being a teenager in America. it sort of starts to reveal, okay, we've had this decade of just roller rinks and upbeat, peppy music and, and it seeps into a year later you have Nirvana, you have Kurt Cobain and all that angst, basically the grunge movement, like Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, Kurt Cobain's suicide. Yeah, it's it's weird to think about what the 80s were and what the nineties were and how they just I really haven't given that a whole lot of thought, but but the, the movie Pump Up the Volume is a high school movie starring Christian Slater. He's just a a rogue disc jockey, like he has a pirate radio station and he just broadcasts uh out under an alias. He's just moved to a town. He uses a voice cloaking mechanism. Hard hat Harry is his online persona. Or his on radio, on hair persona. And he develops a following. And of course nobody knows who he is. He's a he's a very quiet kid. Um just this is his outlet for things uh, is this radio show where he can freely express himself and of course he's talking about the darker aspects of life he talks about I'm not happy I don't like my parents There must have been themes like this in in the in the 80s. I, I wonder what other movies there were that were anything anything this anything this dark. If there was anything, but there there is one one of his classmates calls into the radio show, and he's depressed. Uh, he kind of says, "I'm alone. I don't. I just, I just want to kill myself." And a hard hat Harry tries to like. Say like, look, don't don't take things so seriously. Don't take what I'm saying so seriously. Like it's not that bad. But he comes to school the next day, and then that student has killed himself. And this throws everyone. And everybody knows that there's this radio jockey who, did this this he had called this the night before. And they don't blame him. None of the students blame him. They understand, but the parents. The parents blame them. They feel that there's... Well, I don't think the parents are aware of it. I have to watch this again. But anyway, this is... This movie anticipates the whole podcast uh, era. The notion that everybody can just... Have a voice, put it out there in the form of some radio show that anyone can listen to. Just kind of talk about who you are, where you're at, what's going on in the world. And, you know, he did it. The character in the, in the, in the film, Pump Up the Volume, like Christian Slater's character, he does it without knowing if anyone's listening to him. He comes to learn that. He comes, to, he comes to find out that people are listening to him, but he doesn't do it with the knowledge that anyone will. He just needs this outlet to like talk out into the world, to broadcast himself. Like if, it, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? doesn't matter i of course get pedantic when i consider that question i say like well it generates sound waves but nobody perceives it as sound it's never interpreted as sound like i take the air out of this balloon right away like don't try to make me think deep thoughts here's the technical answer get out of my face but yeah, that's, that's very much what we're doing. Like if you, me doing this podcast is essentially me, a tree falling in the woods and not giving a damn whether or not anyone ever registers what I'm saying as sound, as thoughts, as ideas. And that's really enough for me. I, I don't feel like I need anything more than that. validation enough. Okay. I'm going to wrap this one up and call it good. So, from one shelter in place fellow to another fellow shelter in place human, uh, I hope you're healthy. Hope you and yours are doing well. And I hope you make it make it through today with your sanity intact. Wishing you the best. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.